because we will be looking at it in some detail today. Among the scores of sound bites I heard over the last week, one stands out to me. It was uttered by former Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, when he said, This was a message from hell. My initial reaction was, Right on. You're right on target, Prime Minister. What we need to do, however, this morning, when we consider what has happened in our nation in the last few days, is what is God's viewpoint it's not what I think. It's not what you think that matters. It's what does God say about it. Last Sunday, we noticed that one of the many spiritual blessings which we have been blessed with in Christ in the heavenly realms is the blessing of wisdom. And we saw that wisdom begins when I recognize my spiritual ignorance and I exercise my faith. And remember what faith is. It's a human response to a divine revelation. God speaks to me through the Word of God, and I respond by obeying Him in faith. That leads to wisdom. We must ignore any kind of information that comes our way, whether from inside us or outside of us, which contradicts what God might say about any matter. We are to be people who are wise. Remember what the Proverbs say. The Lord gives wisdom. And knowledge and understanding come from his mouth. So as we consider what has happened, we consider the question initially, was this a message from hell? Let us consult God's word because therein lies ultimate wisdom. Did this message come from hell? Well, I happen to think it did. Satan's fingerprints were all over the event. We know that Jesus himself says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Jesus also says regarding Satan, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. We know that one of the names that is given to the devil by the writer of Revelation is Abaddon or Abaddon, which simply means destroyer. The devil is a destroyer. So we would be on solid ground if we were to say that this was a message from hell, as Benjamin Netanyahu said earlier. But I believe it was also a message from heaven. Satan is a loose cannon, but he is not sovereign. Satan is the prince of this world, according to Jesus. He is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, according to Paul. The world system does lie under the devil's control, according to the Apostle John. But Satan must answer to God. He cannot do his dastardly deeds without God's permission. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, Mike. God's not the author of evil, and this was an evil act. I could not agree with you more. The Bible says in the book of James, the first chapter, God cannot be tempted by evil. God is holy. He's untouched by sin. However, we need to remember that Satan is not on a par with God. Satan is under the ultimate control of God. Quite frankly, Satan is under the ultimate control of Jesus Christ himself. In the book of Ephesians, as we've been studying, Paul prays for the Ephesian church. And he says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the purpose for which he has called you and his, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, catch this. 
and the incomparable great power which He has given to us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, (coughs) excuse me, in every title that can be given, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And then Paul concludes by saying, God has placed all things under his feet. Now, when Paul writes about rule and authority and power and dominion in every title which can be given, make no mistake about it, he was talking about demonic influences under the control of the evil one. All those things have been placed under the control of of Jesus Christ himself, God is still on his throne. I want to affirm that today. A mighty fortress is our God. We do have a formidable foe in the person of Satan. He is crafty. He is mean. He is ill-spirited. But he is not greater than he who is within us, namely Jesus Christ. You may remember what Jesus said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles for that matter. He said, Simon, Simon... Satan has demanded permission to sift you. And the word translated you in Luke chapter 22 is the word you all. Not just some of you. Not just you, Simon Peter, but all disciples of Christ. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And you, once you have turned again to me and to God, strengthen the brothers. Now, understand that when that verse of Scripture is translated by the New American Standard, that Satan has some kind of right to demand of God, quite honestly, that is not a good translation of that verse. The better translation, and I humbly submit to you the better translation this morning would be this. Simon, Simon, Satan has gained permission to sift all of you like wheat. From whom did Satan have to get permission? He had to get it from the Lord. When Job was being tested severely, who gave Satan permission to test Job? God did. Now, this is not very pleasant, perhaps, for some of you to hear, but it is the truth, and it's important that we understand this if we're going to put what has happened and any tragedy in our lives, for that matter, in proper perspective. Satan is crafty, but his inherently evil nature gets the best of him. Eventually, the devil implodes upon himself because of his evil. He has failed, and it's amazing that he's failed as intelligent as he is, but we see how powerful a force evil is, evil overcoming the greatest intelligence probably besides that of our own God. He fails to learn that God always turns the tables on him when God gives him permission to sift his children like wheat. That's exactly what Paul writes in Romans 8:28. Look at it again. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I want you to consider the antecedent of all things. What did Paul have in mind when he referred to all things? Well, look at verse 18 for a moment. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And now look again at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's as if Paul personifies these things which we would think would separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? 
Understand that those to whom these words were first written were people who were well acquainted with trouble in their lives. In fact, undoubtedly, they were under that kind of pressure at the time they received this letter. And it was puzzling to them, just as perplexing as it is to many of us, even those of us who know Christ today, as we try to understand what has happened. Look back up at verse 16 of Romans chapter 8. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I can only imagine what must have been rumbling through the minds of these Romans as they were undergoing tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and peril and sword. They must have scratched their head. They must have wondered, if we're truly heirs of God, why are these things happening to us? Is this the way that God shows His love to us? This adds pain to us to read what you're writing, Paul, except for the fact that we have Romans 8:28, which follows, telling us that this is God's way of conforming us to the image of His Son. How do these things, tribulation, distress, and so forth, square with the great and precious promises earlier provided for us in the book of Romans, and especially in the eighth chapter of Romans, the chapter which has been called by some the crown jewel of the whole Bible, not just the book of Romans, but the entire Bible? Well, there are two principles regarding comfort in our receipt of it in the New Testament, and we need to get on the same page with God at this point. There are lots of people today... And there will be even more as this saga continues who will blame God. They will blame the Lord. But listen to what the Word of God says. That in the New Testament, when it comes to this matter of comfort, in order to really be comforted, we must have a proper understanding. And I emphasize the word understanding of God. You might say, well, Pastor, at this time in our lives... We don't need any doctrine. We need comfort. And the people in New York City do not need doctrine, but they need comfort. Well, let me assure you that our God is a God of all comfort. That's one of the names which He gives Himself. But in order for us to know who God is so that we can respond properly to this tragedy and help others make some sense out of it, we need to know God. Why does Paul use such high-flying theological terms in this passage of Scripture instead of stroking the Romans and telling them everything's going to be all right? Now, he, in essence, does say everything's going to be all right. But did you notice the great theological terms which he employs? He uses the word foreknown or foreknowledge and predestined. He uses the word justified and glorified and the word the elect. Why would he use these things? It's because he understood, as did all the New Testament writers, that God never isolates the problem of sadness to deal with it as if it is something to be handled on its own. What God understands is that true joy and true happiness is only to be found in a proper relationship with God. And in order for us to have a proper relationship with God, we have to know God. We have to know certain truths about God. And we're not try, I'm not trying to reduce God to a set of propositions. Don't misunderstand. But if we do not have a correct understanding of God, we're going to be all over the map as far as our trying to figure out what's happening in our lives. More recently, and then what will happen in the future, or what has happened in the past. 
Now, Paul wanted the Romans to grasp the method which he used himself to encourage himself. He was a man who knew tribulation and distress and famine and nakedness and peril. Perhaps you're familiar with 2 Corinthians chapter 11, which is a great autobiographical statement of his sufferings. And in that, I'm not going to be able to quote it all, but let me just share with you some of the things which he underwent because of his commitment to Jesus Christ. Had he not been a Christian, this would not have happened to him. He was stoned and left for dead. Three times he was shipwrecked, once left in the sea for a whole day in a whole night. Five times he received the maximum number of lashes, 39, that the Jewish law would permit for someone who was a Jew. He said, I've been in danger in the city. I've been in danger in the countryside. I've been in danger from my countrymen, the Jews. I've been in danger from the Gentiles. I've been in danger from robbers. I've known what it is to be well fed. I've known what it is to have plenty. I've had all kinds of tribulation and distress in my life. And how have I dealt with it? Do you know how the Apostle Paul dealt with that? The same way that you and I will deal correctly and with hope. He went to the Word of God. He went to the truths of who God is. And if you and I are going to deal properly with this, we're going to affirm what God says about Himself and His Word. We've seen repeatedly how the Bible says in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, that whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Where are we as the children of God going to receive encouragement? By going to the Scriptures. And what do the Scriptures do? They reveal who God is. They show us who He is. They interpret our lives for us. And they help, help us to go forward. If we're going to give anybody else any help either, it's not going to come from any conventional wisdom. It's going to come from the wisdom that's found in Scripture. As the Scriptures paint an accurate picture of our God. Our God is a loving God. I should stop here. I shared this later in the earlier worship service, but I'm impressed to share this right now. In the book of Ezekiel 18, verse 23, this is what God says about himself. He says, I take no, nada, zero pleasure in the death of the wicked. None, declares the Lord God. Rather, that they would turn from their wicked ways and live. God says, seek me. And live. Do you think God got any pleasure in the death of those people who died who were outside of Christ on Tuesday? God must have wept when he saw them perish. And such should be your response and my response. Not weeping merely for the physical dissolution, but more importantly for the spiritual dissolution. And this leads to another thing that we need to understand regarding the New Testament's concept of comfort. It's based on a proper understanding of God. But it also carries with it a proper view of life, and that is that we're to view life from the spiritual. We need to ask God to pull the curtain back and get us a view of what is going on spiritually. Failure to do so accounts for much of the unhappiness in our own personal lives based on our bad experiences. If we understand who God is and we put our faith in God, that doesn't diminish the anguish which we have, the grief which we have. Hardly a person present today has not shed tears of grief or been distraught. I can never remember a week in my life that I have been more tested in my faith since this week 
started on Tuesday. I have been tested by what has happened to my nation. I have been tested by what has happened in our church when a dear sister in Christ for whom we have prayed for healing passed away. I've been tested in my faith, in my personal life, in many ways as well. This has been a time of great testing. But that only goes to show that the war that we're engaged in is not primarily a physical war. Listen, if you're in Christ, there's been a war waging around you from the moment you received Christ. One of the metaphors which the Bible uses to describe the Christian life, it is a battlefield. But our weaponry is not worldly in nature. It is not carnal. Our weaponry is spiritual. For the bringing down of strongholds, who would be able to answer this question? But I have a suspicion that if we as the people of God had been on our knees before God in times of relative peace, God might have brought down the stronghold of Islam that created this monster. And I want you to understand, I'm not talking about all Islam. I'm talking about the radical fundamentalist concept of Islam. Don't misunderstand me. In fact, I think this is a time for us to take to heart what Jesus says when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. One of the good things for the glory of God that has come out of this is that Christians, including a lady in our church, called me last night. She said, Pastor, I just got off the phone speaking to a man in this mosque nearby, and I told him I was praying for him, and I could literally sense his relief over the phone. Listen, this is a time for us to love people and not all, all at once lump all people who are in a certain ethnic category, a certain religious category into a negative batch. We cannot do that. But what we need to understand is that we are people who live on a spiritual plane. The New Testament is mainly interested in our spiritual, not our physical condition. When we look for things in this world and base our hope and sense of well-being on things of this world, we are disappointed and we end up many times blaming God. Did you experience as much agony when you considered the terrible spiritual war that's being waged at all times around you as you did with respect to the physical wars that have happened more recently beginning on Tuesday? Let's note from Romans 8:28 the all-inclusiveness of this promise. Look at it again. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. The all things, as I've mentioned, have special reference to suffering. The Bible does not tell us to necessarily be courageous, at least Paul does not, in this passage of Scripture. And we do admire courage, right? It shows backbone. It shows moral fiber in some cases. It shows manliness. But there are people like Timothy McVeigh who, when going to his death for his crime in Oklahoma City, showed great courage. He showed no sign of flinching as far as the news reports went as he went to his death. And instead of writing out his own message, he quoted from the poem Invictus, which is the ultimate statement of independence from God by a man. And one line says, bloodied but not bowed. He went bloodied but not bowed. He went courageously. But was that what God wants? We must not confuse courage with faith. God wishes for us to have faith. And as we've seen also over and over again, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. God does not call upon us through Paul or any other of the biblical writers to merely be courageous, although he does want us to be courageous. His main emphasis is upon what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. Listen, let's get our eyes on God. 
He is an awesome God. He is a creator God. He is a compassionate God. And He is a God who is sovereign and who is in control. God uses our suffering for our good. David said, It is good that I was afflicted. Because in being afflicted, I learned your ways, Lord. Thank you, he goes on to say in Psalm 119, verse 75. This is amazing to me. Thank you, Lord, for afflicting me because it made me right, more so at least, with you. You know, God's getting glory out of this. There are more people here today than there have been in a while in this service. God's getting some glory out of this. I heard an editorial say this about what happened last Tuesday. Until Tuesday, he said, America was absorbed with the trivial. All of a sudden, it doesn't really matter whether the Cowboys are playing today. All of a sudden, it really doesn't matter whether Barry Bonds eclipses Mark McGuire's home run record. It really doesn't matter who wins the pennant anymore. It doesn't matter what Gary Condit did or what Gary Condit said. It really doesn't matter. Do you understand? We are a nation and a culture, including the Christian community, which has been absorbed with the trivial. And we get absorbed with the trivial in the church of Jesus Christ also. There are only a few things. In fact, Jesus said to Martha, he said, Martha, Martha, there's only one thing which really matters. And your sister Mary has discovered the nature of that one thing. And she is seated seated at my feet, listening to me. Do you believe that? There's only one thing which really matters, that we're all ears listening to the Lord Jesus Christ, adoring Him and worshiping Him, that we make that our way of life. I'm not talking about coming to a place like this. I'm talking about having a heart and an attitude of worship toward the Lord in every setting and in every situation. One of the victims of one of the United Airlines crash was a flight attendant. His name was Al Marchand. He was from Alamogordo. Perhaps some of you read about him. His wife, Rebecca, in her interview, which she gave to the media, said this. She said, through his death, Al would wish that all people would come to know that a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important thing in this world. Isn't that bringing glory to God? Is God getting some glory out of that testimony? The Shawnee Mission Independent School District in Kansas City, one of the most prestigious and wealthiest school districts, 77 schools, is led by a Jewish female superintendent. On Friday, she received a call from a concerned Christian mother and said to her, Don't you think it's a little odd that our president has called our whole nation to prayer and our children can't even pray at school? You know what she did? Bless her heart. She got on the phone or had her associates do that, and every principal was notified there will be prayer in the schools of Shawnee Mission Independent School District today. And I challenge all of our teachers in school. We are blessed with administrators, two of whom I know of in our church. Teachers, rise up, Christian teachers. Rise up in the name of Jesus Christ. Parents, rise up. Support these people. Let them know that it is time for us to ignore the dictates of man when they contradict the will of God. It's time for us to do this. It's way past time. If that had been happening, it's quite possible what happened on Tuesday would never have happened. If 
we are right with the Lord in this regard. At UTEP this past week, more than one professor, atheistic in orientation, stood in classrooms and said, see what happens when people get religious? They kill people. Now, shame on Christians. Christians in Nigeria. Have you been reading what's been happening in Nigeria before what happened on Tuesday? Did you know that Christians were storming the premises of Muslims and destroying their property in Asalium? Listen, this is not a one-way deal here. But what we need to understand is that in the name of God, Christians are doing all kinds of hateful things. That's not God. That's the devil. I repeat, Satan is the father of lies, and he is a murderer and was a murderer from the beginning. But at UTEP, there were professors, according to my sources, who stood and said, if you were just atheistic, if the world didn't believe in God, if there were no God and there is no God, then this would not have happened. Do you know what that gave the opportunity for some of our students to do? To get up and register their dissent by walking out of the classroom. Bless God for some young people who have enough courage to stand up for the truth. It's time that we as adults return to the ideals of our youth. One of the sicknesses of middle and old age is the sickness of compromise. And we need to repent of our compromise. Get right with the Lord. We need to understand that this promise in Romans 8.28 has its limitation. Look at the limitation. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. My heart goes out to those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ who are suffering today in New York City and Washington and across this great land. Does yours? You have experienced difficulty in your life of one form or another. The loss of a loved one, tragedy, divorce, rejection of some other kind of relationship. It hurts like crazy, doesn't it, when that happens to us? But we in Christ can claim the promise of God because we know our God. Isn't that true when he says he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God? to those who are called according to His purpose. God blesses all men in a general way. He causes His rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He causes His sun to shine on the just and the unjust. But only those who are His children through Jesus Christ does He bless in a special way. The only message for an unbeliever, and there are those who are in that category here today, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, here is His message to you. Repent and believe. For the kingdom of God is near. Turn from your sin. Turn from running your own life to Him and let Him control and run your life. Do we love God? That's a question the church needs to ask. Do we love God? Before any of us raise the question of God's faithfulness or where was God, we had better ask ourselves about our own level of faithfulness. Where were we when it happened? Were we on our face before God? Were we crying out to God? Were we praying without ceasing? Is God, who delivered up His Son, Jesus, for us, likely to let anyone stand against us and His final purpose for us be thwarted? Look at verses 31 and 32 of Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God did that for my salvation and your salvation, he will surely do everything else that is necessary to conform us to the image of his son. And remember, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, not through his pleasure, which he must have had much of, but through what he suffered. Now, if this is a message from heaven, it is a message from hell, there's no question. I submit to you, even more importantly, it is a message from heaven. What is the message? Very simple. Four things. Stop trusting in man, because the Bible says, Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends upon the arm of flesh. And start trusting in God. Did you notice the symbols which were destroyed by those planes on Tuesday? The symbol of materialism and the symbol of militarism. Let us never forget what Jesus said when he said, You cannot serve both God and money. Church, it's time that we stopped serving money. It's time we repented of that. God's sending us a message. You may be surprised that the book of Ezekiel tells us that God's main gripe against Sodom was not the abominable practice of homosexuality, as heinous as that was in the eyes of God. But he says in the 18th chapter, in the 49th verse, that they were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Church, we need to rise up. And be the church of God. Jesus fed the hungry. We need to feed the hungry. Jesus cared for the disenfranchised. We need to care for the disenfranchised. The people that nobody else will take in, we need to care for. And then militarism. The Pentagon. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They will collapse and fall. Those who trust in military might, they're going to collapse and fall. Listen, those who perpetrated this crime are going to fall. They're going to collapse. But what does it say about those who trust in the Lord? And this is a word for not just the church, but all of America. They rise and stand upright. And if I understand correctly, in order for me to rise, I've got to be in a position of humility before God, either on my face or on my knees. It's time for the church to get on its knees again and face, as we did earlier today. This week we've had three prayer meetings in our church. Shame on me for not having more prayer meetings in this church and focusing on prayer as I ought to as your spiritual leader in this church. We have on a good Wednesday 12 people who come to pray. Does that mean there are only 12 praying? No, I'm not saying that. But there are hundreds more who could be here every Wednesday to pray or other times to pray before the Lord, crying out to the Lord. Remember what Jehoshaphat said when Judah was badly outnumbered, and he came to the Lord, and he said, as he looked to the Lord, Lord, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. We need to stop trusting in man, the arm of flesh, in materialism, militarism, and put our trust in the Lord our God. The next thing is, life is brief. In James 4, the Bible says, you are a mist that appears for a little while, and then you disappear. Isn't that true? Those of us who are in our middle or to late years, we understand that better than those of you who are younger. Life is over just like that. It's gone. And I think about all those people who perished. We have a responsibility to share the gospel. You do not know that the next person whom you meet, that person may not live beyond today. 
And you and I need to ask the Lord, Lord, give us an opportunity to share our faith with others and help us to live today as if it were our last. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 says, Now is the day of salvation. If you're here today and you've never received Christ, receive Jesus today. The only time on the devil's clock is tomorrow. He wants you to procrastinate in making the most important decision of your life, that is, to give your life to Christ. Steve Mariucci, the head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, has a clock in his office, and instead of where the numbers should appear, there's the word now at 1 o'clock and now at 2, right around the dial. That is what God is saying to us. Now is the time of salvation. Many of us have heard the poignant story of how Father Michael Judge, the New York Fire Department chaplain, died as he was ministering to some of the firemen there. This is a favorite saying which he had. If you want to make God laugh, then tell him what you're going to do tomorrow. None of us has the guarantee of a tomorrow. We need to live today as if it were our last day. The third thing that we need to do in addition to putting our trust in the Lord and remembering that life is brief, brief is we need to heed the Word of God in Hebrews 12:5, which says, Endure hardship as discipline. The writer does not qualify what type of hardship, just all hardship. It's the disciplinary hand of God upon me when I have hardship. Do you believe that? You need to understand this is the truth. God, in His loving care for me as my father, loves me enough to discipline me, and he does it through hardship. He does it to his children. And one of the signs that you are a child of God is you're having some trouble in your life. The last thing is, probably I should have said this one first, repent. Becky and the worship team sang, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Notice God does not say seek my hand. People have prayed in unprecedented numbers in the history of our country this week. There have probably been more people praying this week than in any other time in the history of the United States. But for the most part, Christians including, we have asked the Lord to do something for us. But you know, that's not what God says. He says, seek my face. Seek a relationship with me. And then everything else will fall into place and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Do you know the healing of this land depends upon not the rank and file American citizen. It depends on God ultimately. But to whom was this command and promise made? It was made to God's people. If my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. And heal their land. A final word from the Word of God. Psalm 37 says, Do not fret because of evil men. Like dry, like grass, they will dry up and wither. But he goes on to say, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. That's the word of the Lord to us today. Trust in Him. He is a good God. And he is a sovereign God. This has not caught him by surprise. He is in control. And he can cause this to glorify himself as he's already doing. But in addition to this, he can take this in the lives of his children as he does any kind of difficulty or tragedy and transform it into something beautiful as he turns the tables on the devil. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that you would spur us on to love and good deeds. We would be men and women who would live on the edge for you, Lord, that we would 
repent of receding into the shadows, that we would stand up for you and your word and your name in the workplace, in our schools, wherever we find ourselves, Lord. Thank you for these reports that we've received this week of courageous, faithful acts on the part of your people. And we pray that they would be multiplied over and over again. There would be a ripple effect, Father, that we would be men and women, boys and girls of faith, not fear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.